From New York, this is Democracy Now! We're reaching yet another staggering milestone in Gaza. Nearly 25,000 people reported killed, according to the Gaza Ministry of Health. 70% of them women and children. Another 61,500 at least have been injured. Several thousands more are under the rubble, many presumed dead. As Israel continues to pound Gaza, Netanyahu is facing more pressure to bring home the remaining 130 hostages held there. We'll speak with Mossab Abu Toha, a Palestinian poet and author who was detained by Israeli authorities as he and his family fled Gaza. We'll talk to him about conditions there, including for his brother's wife, who's about to give birth. Then Israelism. A new documentary about the relationship between U.S. Jews and the state of Israel and their disillusionment as they begin to question Israel's occupation. What we've been told is that the only way that Jews can be safe is if Palestinians are not safe. The more I learned about that, the more I came to see that as a lie. Within the Jewish community, there's been a striking change. They're really angry at the way they were indoctrinated, justifiably so. We'll speak with the director of Israelism and one of the American Jews featured in the film as they head out on tour with 40 new screening dates around the country. And we'll look at the state of the Republican Party as the GOP presidential primary in New Hampshire becomes a two-person race. I am today suspending my campaign. I'm proud to have delivered on 100% of my promises, and I will not stop now. It's clear to me that a majority of Republican primary voters want to give Donald Trump another chance. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has dropped out. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Gaza, the death toll from Israel's 15-week war has topped 25,000, with at least 190 Palestinians killed over the last 24 hours. There are reports Israel's blowing up entire neighborhoods of the besieged city, Khan Yunus, where Israel's targeted hospitals, ambulances and schools. Palestinian families in Khan Yunus are now burying loved ones inside the Nasser Hospital complex. Currently, dead bodies are being buried here inside Nasser Complex. It's very difficult to leave the complex and go to any cemetery and bury them because we're under siege and anyone who leaves the complex is targeted. Last night, we lived through a horrifying night. The shelling wouldn't stop for even one minute. Buildings would shake with us inside. Shrapnel would fall on us. In more news from Gaza, the Wall Street Journal is reporting the United States, Qatar and Egypt are pushing Israel and Hamas to take part in what the paper describes as a phased diplomatic process involving the release of hostages in Gaza and the eventual withdrawal of Israeli forces. After the report was published, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said he rejects the proposal because it calls for the war to end. Over the weekend, Netanyahu also reiterated his opposition to the formation of an independent Palestinian state, a two-state solution, despite pressure from the United States to support one. 
This all comes as Netanyahu faces more domestic pressure to bring home the remaining 130 hostages held in Gaza. Earlier today, the Israeli Knesset session was suspended after families of hostages disrupted a committee meeting demanding lawmakers do more to free their loved ones. Protesters also blocked entrances to the Knesset. On Saturday, friends and relatives of Israeli hostages protested in Tel Aviv. This is Maccabit Maia. Her nephew, Ziv and Gali Berman, are still being held in Gaza. Stop the war. Stop the war. Take them out. We save them. And then, after a while, there is no victory without them out. No victory. Nothing. On Saturday, hundreds of Israelis and Palestinians living in Israel came together to take part in an anti-war rally in Haifa, the third largest city in Israel. In the occupied West Bank, a 17-year-old Palestinian-American named Taufik Ajak was fatally shot in the head Friday, according to the group Defense for Children International. Ajak was killed when Israeli settler and soldiers opened fire on him in Ramallah. He grew up in Louisiana, near New Orleans. He moved to the West Bank last year with his family. Ajak is at least the 93rd Palestinian child killed in the occupied West Bank since October 7th. On Saturday, Taufik Ajak's father spoke to reporters at his son's funeral. But come here on the ground and see what's going on. Come here and test and see for your own eyes what kind of life we are living here. What is the pressure they put us under? What is the women's and kids and how many fathers and mothers have to say goodbye to their children? How many more? But it will come, inshallah, one day. Israel carried out airstrikes on Syria and Lebanon over the weekend. Israel blew up a building in Damascus, Syria, killing five advisors from Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. In a separate attack, an Israeli drone struck a car near the Lebanese border. Four people reportedly died, including a member of Hezbollah. Hours after Israel bombed Damascus, Iranian-backed militants in Iraq fired missiles at an airbase housing U.S. forces. U.S. Central Command reports a number of U.S. personnel are being evaluated for traumatic brain injuries. On Friday, the United States bombed Houthi targets in Yemen for at least the sixth time over the past 10 days. This comes as Houthi forces continue to target commercial ships in the Red Sea and Gulf of Aden as part of a campaign to pressure Israel to halt its assault on Gaza. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has dropped out of the presidential race less than a week after he lost to Donald Trump by a record 30 percentage points in the Iowa caucus. In a video released Sunday, DeSantis said he would endorse Trump. Yes, my endorsement, because we can't go back to the old Republican guard of yesteryear, a repackage formed of warmed over corporatism that Nikki Haley represents. With DeSantis out, the Republican race has essentially become a two-person contest between Trump and Nikki Haley, the former South Carolina governor who served as Trump's U.N. ambassador. Over the weekend, she campaigned in New Hampshire ahead of Tuesday's primary. She questioned Trump's mental fitness after he repeatedly confused her with former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Joe Biden is now running an online ad questioning Trump's mental capabilities featuring Haley's comments. Last night, Trump is at a rally. You know, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley. And he's 
going on and on mentioning me multiple times as to why I didn't handle January 6th better. Nikki Haley is in charge of security. We offered her 10,000 people. They don't want to talk about that. I wasn't in office then. They're saying he got confused. He got confused and said he was running against Obama. He never ran against Obama. And we did with Obama. We won an election that everyone said couldn't be won. Obama wants to, he doesn't want to talk about it. But you mean President Biden. So, uh... Don't put our country at risk like this. I'm Joe Biden, and I approve this message. President Trump also said Joe Biden will bring us into World War II. We'll have more on the Republican race later in the program. In news on the war in Ukraine, at least 27 people died in the Russian-occupied city of Donetsk when a crowded market was hit by a barrage of artillery shells. Local authorities blame Ukraine for the attack, which Ukraine has denied. On Friday, a Ukrainian drone attacked an oil storage depot inside western Russia, resulting in a major fire. The Russian facility held about 1.6 million gallons of oil. In Germany, hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets over the weekend in nationwide protests against the rise of the far right. The protests came days after a German news outlet reported members of the far right Alternative for Germany, or AFD, party, recently took part in a meeting where a plan was discussed to mass deport immigrants and, quote, non-assimilated citizens, unquote. German protesters decried the growing rise of the far right. It is particularly important to me because I have the feeling that the same thing is happening again, as it happened with the Nazis back then. The whole shift to the right is being normalized. People would rather work with the right than with the left. And it's important to set an example. There are left-wingers. We are here. We are many. And we are against it. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi has inaugurated the controversial Ram Temple, a massive Hindu temple built on the ruins of a historic mosque in the northern town of Ayodhya. The site was previously home to the centuries-old Babri Mosque, which was razed to the ground in 1992 by a Hindu mob, triggering the most deadly religious riots since Indian independence. Over 2,000 people were killed, most of them Muslim. The opening of the new temple is seen as an unofficial kickoff for Modi's re-election campaign for a third term and a triumph for his Hindu nationalist agenda. Here in New York, a three-month-old migrant girl has died after suffering a cardiac arrest. She was staying at a migrant shelter with her family in Queens. This comes amidst an ongoing housing crisis for migrants, many of whom have been left scrambling for a safe place to live after New York Mayor Eric Adams imposed a 60-day limit for families to stay in shelters. The limit's just 30 days for single men. In Brooklyn, around 2,000 migrants staying at the Floyd Bennett Field tent facility. Many of them children have been facing below freezing temperatures for days. Democracy Now! was at Floyd Bennett Field this weekend and spoke with Fabiola Mendieta Quapio, a Brooklyn resident and immigrant justice advocate who's been organizing to help provide immigrants with essential needs and resources. We've been receiving um, complaints about people getting sick because it's cold. Um, they put the heat, they have heat inside. Um, but still, you know, it's just in the area. It's, the area is cold, isolated. Most of the people who live inside these tents, they're new arrivals, right? It, I don't think it's fair that they're going to get kicked out and make them go to the intake center again and reapply and wait outside in the cold. We're talking about 
families with kids, I think the city should reconsider about the the 60-day rule, especially for families with small kids. Ninety deaths have been recorded over the past week as winter storms pounded vast swaths of the United States. Tens of thousands of homes lost power over the weekend in Oregon and other states. In Tennessee, a boil water notice was issued to all Memphis-area residents after water mains froze and broke. A federal judge in New York has ordered the release of James Cromarty, who's been spent the last 15 years in prison after being entrapped in a government-orchestrated bombing plot. He's the fourth and final member of the so-called Newburgh Four to be ordered release. The men, all of them black Muslim converts, work sentenced to 25 years in prison in 2010 after being convicted on terrorism charges. Judge Colleen McMahon criticized the FBI sting operation, saying the men, quote, would not have and could not have devised the crime they were accused of. Visit democracynow.org to see all of our coverage of the Newberg Four. President Biden Friday canceled nearly $5 billion in student loan debt for 74,000 people. It's the latest effort by the administration to provide much-needed relief to borrowers after the Supreme Court last year threw out Biden's plan to erase over $400 billion in debt for millions of people. The latest move will benefit teachers, nurses, firefighters, and other public service workers, among others. And in Park City, Utah, filmmakers and community members have organized vigils and protests to coincide with the Sundance Film Festival, which is celebrating its 40th edition this year. An international coalition of filmmakers organized under the banner Film Workers for Palestine is calling for a Gaza ceasefire, an end to Israel's occupation of Palestine, and an end to U.S. military support for Israel. Over 700 film workers have signed on to the group's mission, including the American actor Susan Sarandon, British directors Mike Lee and Ken Loach, Palestinian-American filmmaker Shireen Dabbas, who was Emmy-nominated for directing Only Murders in the Building, Indian-American filmmaker Mira Nair, and Finnish director Aki Korosmaki. Roughly 200 people rallied in Park City's busy Main Street Sunday, shutting down traffic, demanding a ceasefire. Meanwhile, the group reports Sundance officials have been directing filmmakers not to publicly raise the topic of Palestine. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show in Gaza, where the death toll from Israel's 15-week war has topped 25,000. There are reports Israel's blowing up entire neighborhoods of the besieged city of Khan Yunus. Al Jazeera reports Israel's targeted hospitals, ambulances, and schools in the city where thousands of civilians are sheltering. Meanwhile, the Wall Street Journal reports the United States, Qatar, and Egypt are pushing Israel and Hamas to take part in what the paper describes as a phased diplomatic process involving the release of hostages held in Gaza and the eventual withdrawal of Israeli forces from Gaza. After the report was published, the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, said he rejects the proposal because it calls for the war to end. On Thursday, Netanyahu also publicly rejected calls by the Biden administration for the future establishment of a Palestinian state and called for Israel to be in control of the region from the river to the sea. I clarified that in any arrangement in the foreseeable future, with an accord or without an accord, the state of Israel must have security control over the entire territory west of the Jordan River. This is a necessary condition. It clashes with the principle of sovereignty. What can you do? 
I tell this truth to our American friends, and I also stopped the attempt to impose a reality on us that would harm Israel's security. A prime minister in Israel should be able to say no even to our best friends, say no when necessary, and say yes when possible. This comes as Netanyahu faces growing domestic pressure to bring home the remaining 130 hostages held in Gaza. Earlier today, the Israeli Knesset session was suspended after hostages' families disrupted a committee meeting demanding lawmakers do more to free their loved ones. Protesters also blocked entrances to the Knesset. For more, we're joined in Cairo, Egypt, by Mossab Abu Toha, Palestinian poet and author who was detained by Israeli authorities as he and his family fled Gaza. He wrote about his experience in a New Yorker article headlined, A Palestinian Poet's Perilous Journey Out of Gaza. He's a columnist, a teacher, a founder of the Edward Said Library in Gaza, also the author of the award-winning book titled, Things You May Find Hidden in My Ear— Poems from Gaza. Mossab, welcome back to Democracy Now! We talked to you just after you made it out of Gaza, um, following some of your family members. Uh, you had been detained. Can you describe that journey and the family members that are still left in Gaza, particularly your brother's wife, who is about to give birth? For having me and thanks to Democracy Now! for their continued coverage of the massacres that are taking place in Gaza. Um, I was on the show a few weeks ago with you and I described the, the horrific experience that I went through. Just yesterday I watched a video of uh, merciless Israeli soldiers uh, stripping naked fellow Palestinian uh, civilians and they were beating them in the face, beating them in the stomachs. They are outside in the open in the cold weather. And I'm really surprised because when some media out, uh, outlets communicated with the Israeli army about my case, they said, we, we, well, we deny everything he says. It's true, we took him, we interrogated him, but we did not attack him. But we can see in videos now that are uh, coming out on social media by Israeli soldiers, the merciless uh, treatment of Palestinians. So everything this army is doing is inhumane is against whatever a child can think of doing. Even a child cannot do anything like that to a cat or to a mouse. Yesterday, my wife told me that my son, every time he is going to sleep, he starts to weep and sob and cry out loud sometimes. And he asks about his friends in Gaza. Are they eating well? Do they have water? And what about his parents, his grandparents, sorry, about his, his cousins? So what is going on right now in Gaza is, is really unprecedented. I can't think of another case in history where everything is taking place live. And the world leaders are supporting Israel with, it, with whatever they can. I was released, thankful, thankfully, uh, after uh, a lot of friends and uh, media outlets uh, wrote about my case. But there are still hundreds and hundreds of innocent people who are still under Israeli uh, custody, who are being stripped naked, who are being uh, beaten in the face and thrown uh, outside in the cold. Uh, my parents and my siblings are still back in Gaza. Uh, my parents and uh, two of, three of my siblings and their children uh, are, are in North Gaza. 
a place where there are only six ambulances for the for about five more than five hundred thousand Palestinians there. They are running out of food, running out of water. Uh, uh, yesterday, my brother uh, sent me a voice message from his phone, about to cry. There is no bread for the children. There is no medicine for the cold and the flu. Not to mention that there is no medicine for people with chronic diseases. And we have been telling the whole world about this on social media, on TV, and no one is listening. I mean, Israel is accusing Egypt of closing the border with, with, with Gaza. But this is a big lie because from day one, Israel bombed the Rafah border crossing. And they are bombing the, the, the aid trucks. And they are not allowing the UNRWA commission general from going to North Gaza. So this is a, a very highly official person. And he is not allowed to go to Gaza because they are saying, oh, Hamas is stealing the, the aid from the people. But okay, let international staff go into the north of Gaza and see what's happening there. Why are you blocking the way <clears throat> between the, the northern part and the southern part? And they still... So from day one, Israel asked people from the north of Gaza to go south. And now they are continuing to bomb the southern parts of the Gaza Strip. So nowhere is safe, whether it's North Gaza or South Gaza. And there was, yesterday I posted something on social media, and, and someone with, I don't know what kind of people they are, and he said, why is your brother still in North Gaza? I mean, do you mean that if he left, if he had left North Gaza, Gaza he would live in peace in South Gaza? My friends and my, my, my neighbors and my wife's family are in North Gaza, and they are starving, and, and many of them were killed. So where do we go? Can you talk about the telecommunications blackout that went on for something like eight days and what that means for someone like your sister-in-law when it comes to giving birth? Well, Israel was, was really cruel enough not only to cut off water and food from the people in Gaza, but they also cut electricity, they cut off uh, internet connection, they cut off uh, mobile services and, and landline services also. So this is not, I mean, this is not about me calling my brother, hi, how are you, are you still alive? No. It's even when someone is being bombed, and many people are under the rubble, by the way, uh, until now. They are under the rubble, and they send sometimes messages from their phone services. I mean, the only way people can communicate with the outside world is using an eSIM card that they could connect to uh, con uh, networks outside of Gaza. So some people would send, oh, they bombed my neighbor's house and they are under the rubble. Can someone please call the Red Cross? Can someone call the ambulances? So it's not only about disconnecting us from each other, but also when someone is, 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 is wounded, is thrown in the street, and they try to reach out to an ambulance, there is no way they can do that. So I don't know what kind of cruelty that leads someone to cut water, food, to cut the connection, and also to cut their lives. So they are ending the lives of everyone in Gaza, especially children. Masaba, now, my sister, my, my, my brother's wife is, is pregnant. Yeah. And Four. when is she expected to give birth? She's in the Jabalia refugee camp in northern Gaza? Yes, she is in the Jabali refugee camp. Uh, she was staying at a school, uh, at an honorable school, uh, with her husband and her three other children. 
But because the schools are very crowded and there is no water, no toilets to use, so they sometimes go back and forth between their family house and uh, the, the, school, the honor school in the Jabal refugee camp. And by the way, our house was bombed uh, in, in October, on October 28th. And we were lucky because we were not there. Uh, so no one of us was harmed. But still, they are under the threat of being killed any moment. Under the, I mean, not only by the Israeli airstrike, but also as a mother, my, my, my brother's wife is now pregnant. There is no guarantee that she is going to give birth just like other mothers give birth to their children. Uh, there is no cleanliness. There, is no, there are no clothes for the newborn. There is no formula milk if needed. There is no medicine for the mother if she needs any treatment. So it's people, many people are dying not because of the Israeli airstrikes, not because of the bombs, but also because there is no any sign of good life there. I wanted to ask you, Mossab Abutoha, about the significance of massive protests around the world and in the United States, particularly led by the Jewish community, what that means to you, and also South Africa bringing this case against Israel, charging it with genocide to the International Court of Justice. I was invited to, to read uh, during an rabbi uh, event for ceasefire, and we have been seeing the, the South African attempts to, to prove Israel's genocidal attempts to, 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 to kill as many Gazans as possible. So we have African people who lived under, uh, under the uh, apartheid system, and we have Jews who were killed during the Holocaust in, 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 in Europe. So they are now uniting together to, to stop these massacres. So this tells us as, as Gazans that we share the same suffering with other people. But unfortunately, this suffering is brought to us by other people now in Israel, Zionists, who are bringing this cycle of violence into us. And not for a year, for a year or two. It's been happening even before the Nakba in 1948. So this tells us that Suffering is colorless, is, 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 uh, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be a white or a Muslim or an Arab or a male or a female. It's enough for you to be a human, to sympathize with other people and to call for a ceasefire and to stand for your fellow human beings. And I hope that we can hear similar uh, pleas and similar, and we can see other attempts not by the, peop the free people of the world, but also if there is any free leader in the world who can step in and, and, and say out loud to stop the massacres, the, the non-stop massacres of the Palestinian people, and to call for a just solution to the Palestinian case. Masab, we spoke to you right before uh, Rafat Alarir was killed in an Israeli airstrike in Gaza the renowned uh, Palestinian poet. I know he was a close friend of yours. I was wondering if you could um, share your remembrance of him, um, talk about his significance and how he died. Well, first of all, Rifat's death is not a unique death. There are many other intelligent and wonderful and lovely people who were killed the same way. And by the way, 
many people don't know this, but Rifat's body is still under the rubble of the house that was bombed. So I want everyone to imagine that your brother, that your father, that your, your neighbor was not only killed, but his body is, is still under the rubble, and it, the body is starting to decay. I don't know what remains of Rifat's body. This really uh, breaks my heart. I would like to remember Rifat as someone who was always ready to listen to our literary works. He, he, likes, he liked to, to, uh, to, to read some of Shakespeare's sonnets, of John Donne's poems. He was, a, he was a huge fan of John Donne. I would like to remember Rifat as someone who, loves, who loved to go to strawberry farms and pick, pick strawberries with me and to play pun games. Uh, Rifat is, is someone who didn't want to die. And in his poem, If I Must Die, he didn't say if I die, if I must die, if, if my death was a necessity, let it be a hope, let it be a tale, let it bring hope. And it's really uh, uh, very, very, very sympathetic and very, very beautiful to, to, to see that many people around the world are reading his poem and flying his kite. And I'm sure that Rifat is outside now, seeing. I mean, although his body is still under the rubble, but his spirit, his soul is watching everything. He's watching the kites that are flying in the sky of the free world. And I think, I believe that his only hope right now is that these kites will fly over Gaza to protect the children and mothers and fathers and everyone in Gaza from the Israeli airstrikes. I want to end by asking about what you are calling for. The Wall Street Journal is reporting the U.S., Qatar, and Egypt are pushing Israel and Hamas to take part in what the paper describes as a phased diplomatic process involving the release of hostages um, and the eventual withdrawal of Israeli forces. But following the report, Netanyahu said he rejects the proposal because it calls for the war to end. Your response, Mossab? Okay, so I don't think that any ceasefire that is going to be signed between Hamas and Israel is going to end the Palestinian suffering. So if this suffering does not end, I don't think that there will be peace. What should be called for is a just solution to the Palestinian case. It's not only about the hostages, it's not about even the children who are being killed now. Because if there is no peace, if there is not, I mean, not realistic peace is, being, is not being reached, I think that we will unfortunately witness more and more of the killings of innocent people everywhere. Uh, what, what I call for is a ceasefire because we want to save as many children and many family members as possible. What I'm calling for, I mean, if they can't, if they can't uh, I mean, impose a ceasefire right now, at least get some food and some water and some sanitary pads to the mothers and everyone in North Gaza at least. I mean, I don't know what makes this world powerless in front of Israel. Masab Abu Taha, I want to thank you for being with us, Palestinian poet and author detained by Israeli authorities as he and his family fled Gaza, a columnist, a teacher, founder of the Edward Said Library in Gaza, author of the award-winning book, Things You May Find Hidden in My Ear, 
Poems from Gaza. We'll also link to his pieces in The New Yorker magazine. Next up, we speak with the, one of the directors and people featured in Israelism, a new documentary about the relationship between U.S. Jews and the state of Israel. Stay with us. I need Anna. I am stubborn by Al-Fajr Group. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Six students have sued Harvard University, accusing it of becoming a bastion of rampant anti-Jewish hatred and harassment and tolerating intensifying harassment of Jewish students since October 7th. This comes as reports of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia have soared nationwide. But there's been a broader effort to restrict pro-Palestinian speech on college and university campuses and to conflate anti-Semitism with criticism of Israel's occupation and demands for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. The former Harvard president, Claudine Gay, was forced to resign earlier this month, just weeks after the University of Pennsylvania president, Liz McGill, stepped down in the wake of a congressional hearing on anti-Semitism, where they were grilled by lawmakers, including the far-right New York Congress member Elise Stefanik. The lawsuit against Harvard was filed by two law firms, including the New York-based Kazowitz Benson Torres, which filed similar lawsuits against New York University and the University of Pennsylvania. The firm also has ties to the Trump administration. The lawsuit refers to student-led marches on Harvard's campus in support of Palestinian rights as mobs of pro-Hamas students and faculty, and singles out a screening at Harvard Divinity School in September of the new documentary, Israelism which examines the relationship between Jews in the United States and the state of Israel and the disillusionment as they begin to question Israel's occupation of Palestine. In a minute, we'll speak with one of the film's directors and one of the main subjects. This is the film's trailer. Some American Jews who come here say, we came to Israel and we left from Palestine. The non-Jewish community does not understand our obsession with Israel. I went to a Jewish day school. Summer camp, organized trips to Israel. Do you want to go to Israel too? Yeah! We want to go! We want to go! Israeli soldiers, they're hot, they're awesome, they're strong. We actually have had quite a few of our former students join the IDF. And these are kids, these are 18, 19 year olds. Amazing. I told my parents I don't even need to apply to college. I'm going to just join the Israeli military. 10% of my graduating class joined the Israeli army. We were deployed to the West Bank. 
I don't think I realized the extent to which what I would come to see on the ground would really shock me and horrify me. When people look at the West Bank today and say, this is an apartheid system, it's not just throwing out a word. Palestinians live in day in, day out, without experiencing a day of freedom. You see what non-democracy looks like. What we've been told is that the only way that Jews can be safe is if Palestinians are not safe. The more I learned about that, the more I came to see that as a lie. Within the Jewish community, oh, there's been a striking change. They're really angry at the way they were indoctrinated, justifiably so. When we talk about we're losing the kids, we're not, we lost them. I think they're a little super naive. Anytime you cut against the grain, you're going to catch hell. You are a self-loathing Jew. Go kill yourself. An anti-Semitic Jew. The way that we talk about anti-Semitism isn't about protecting Jews, it's about protecting Israel. How dangerous is that? They will do anything to preserve unconditional support for Israel. The great irony is that there actually is resurgent anti-Semitism. History is not going to judge us kindly. That's the trailer for the documentary Israelism. For more, we're joined in Toronto by Aaron Axelman, co-director of Israelism. The film's now on a 40-city screening tour in Canada and the United States. Here in New York, we're joined by Simone Zimmerman, Jewish-American activist, co-founder, if not now, one of the main protagonists of Israelism. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Aaron, let's begin with you. Why did you make this film? Yeah, this film is really based off my story. It's based off a story of young American Jews learning a uh, idealized and sanitized version of Israeli history and really falling in love with that history, but, a come, come, but upon coming into contact with Palestinians and Palestinian narratives, having quite the rude awakening upon learning about the horrific oppression of the Palestinian people. So upon learning about the Nakba and the occupation as a young person, I wanted to do all I could in whatever way, big or small, to help change my own Jewish community, as well as to end the horrific oppression of the Palestinian people. And I began trying to come into contact with more and more people who had, my, who had similar experiences. And I began to realize that my own story was part of a much larger generational change as hundreds of thousands of young American Jews begin to realize that to live out our Jewish values to the best of our ability, we must fight for the freedom and equality of Palestinians while also fighting against anti-Semitism. Talk about the organizations that you chronicle, um, that you sort of depict in this film, those that are challenging uh, the state of Israel and those that are supporting it, that the other groups are taking on. Definitely. We really, uh, Simone is the main character and protagonist in the film, and we really try to tell a generational story, and I'm telling my own story through Simone in many ways. Um, we really chronicle a variety of progressive Jewish groups, uh, including If Not Now, Jewish Voice for Peace, J Street, and many others. And then we also, on the right, document a lot of uh, pro-Israel groups. We have Abe Foxman uh, as one of the main characters in the film, uh, the director emeritus and former head of the Anti-Defamation League. We talk extensively about Birthright and APAC and other groups that have tried to keep the status quo of unconditional support for Israel alive and well. So let's bring uh, Simone Zimmerman into this conversation. Why don't you tell us about your upbringing, Simone? Uh, talk about your allegiance to the state of Israel, how it was instilled with you, and then talk about your transformation. Absolutely. I grew up in a Jewish community 
where, you know, the Holocaust was a, a formative part of my upbringing. And I saw the defending the state of Israel as a core part of what it meant to keep the Jewish people safe. It was a core Jewish commitment for me, so much so that when I actually met anti-Zionist Jews, anti-Zionist Israelis, uh, people who were fighting occupation and apartheid when I was a college student at UC Berkeley, I couldn't even believe that those people existed. They were an anomaly to me. Uh, and the more I met those students and more importantly, met Palestinian students, learned about their lives, about, you know, what it means for from the moment you, that you're born to live under a system that deems you lesser, less worthy, that you have to live under occupation and oppression and dispossession just because of who you are and where you were born. I I very quickly ran out of of answers that felt moral and and logical to me to answer the hard questions that I was hearing from these students about how I could justify the oppression that they lived under. Simone, I wanted to go to that moment at UC Berkeley. You're a graduate of the University of California, Berkeley. A clip from Israelism, which features you in 2010 there, when the student Senate failed to override a veto of a bill calling on campus officials to divest from companies that supply weapons that Israel uses in the occupation of the Palestinian territories. I just knew it was this bad thing that I had to fight. It is anti-Semitism. It is. You are trying to make me feel marginalized on my own campus. And I remember all of us going, well, uh, you shouldn't boycott Israel because uh, it's applying a double standard, and you shouldn't boycott Israel because it's unfair to single out Israel. Please, I beg of you, I beg you, please to have compassion and to remember that we are alienating students and I am devastated by this bill. I am a human being. I still remember you have these Palestinian students who get up and said, you know, Jewish students, you are crying about feeling silenced and marginalized. You know, my aunts and cousins didn't sleep for weeks while bombs were falling overhead in Gaza. What do you have to say to that? If divestment is hostile, then, then where do we begin to describe the hostility of a military occupation? Simone Zimmerman, if you can talk about that moment at UC Berkeley, what exactly was happening and how you decided to explore further— the kind of questioning that actually also came out of your Jewish education. Absolutely. Well, you know, first I want to say it's it's striking to have this conversation right now as, you know, the Israeli military has destroyed all the universities in Gaza right now. And for me, I remember when I was in that campus debate, the, the way that um, this narrative about Jewish students being unsafe on campus is actually, I think, a deep conflation between being unsafe and being uncomfortable. I was deeply uncomfortable. I did not know about the realities that Palestinians lived under. I was systematically denied an education uh, about that reality. And, and to this day, we see pro-Israel organizations working to do everything they can to, to change the topic away from Palestinian suffering onto Jewish discomfort. You know what? Occupation and apartheid are deeply uncomfortable. We should all be uncomfortable and outraged by what's happening in Gaza right now. And again, as I already said, the more I listened to Palestinian students testify about their realities, the more it was undeniable to me that I 
I was missing a huge part of the story, and I had to go find out more. Erin Axelman, I wanted you to introduce us to Eitan, an American who decides not to go to college first, but to serve in the IDF. Um, we're about to play a clip of him. From our hands and threw him to the ground while he's still blindfolded and hands tied behind his back. And they started kicking him for a good few minutes. I was responsible for this man's well-being. I was responsible to bring him from the checkpoint to the detention center. That was my job. And right outside the fence of the detention center, they grab him from me and they start beating him. I, I felt responsible, but my commander wasn't saying anything, so how could I say anything? The entire time that this was happening, a military police officer was standing just inside the fence watching and smoking a cigarette. As soon as these guys were done kicking this Palestinian man, the military police officer tossed his cigarette. He came, brought him inside the detention center. And I didn't even speak up. I didn't speak up. And that's just one of many stories uh, that I have from my time in the West Bank. So that was Eitan. It reminds me of our previous guest, uh, Mossab Abu Toha, describing being beaten by the IDF. Well, he, Eitan, came to serve in Israel in the IDF. Tell us more about him and his transformation. Yeah, many uh, American Jews uh, are told that to defend the Jewish people and to be a good Jewish person, one of the best things you can do is to join the Israeli military or support the Israeli military. In the film, we extensively interview uh, Hillel educators and an Israel fellow at the um, University of Connecticut, and they openly brag about how many kids they've gotten to serve in the Israeli military. Um, and that is deeply tragic. And I've had friends, uh, American Jewish friends, who have also served. And they join as young people, as 18-year-olds, thinking that they're doing a great thing by defending the Jewish people. And then many of them are sent to the occupied West Bank. And they quickly realize that they are actually a cog in a system of apartheid, a system that places you in a different legal system based upon the race you are born into. And so many American Jews, and some Israelis as well, when they actually realize that this is what they're doing, they're not defending the Jewish people, they're actually defending a settlement expansionist program in the West Bank that is very literally a system of apartheid, uh, it is devastating and it is heartbreaking. Obviously, they're not the greatest victims. The greatest victims, of course, are the Palestinians who have to face that apartheid. Um, but it's inspiring to see um, members uh, of Breaking the Silence, both Israelis and Americans, speak out and say, we thought we were joining to do something and we found out that we were actually, again, a, a part of this apartheid system and they're going to do everything they can to end the system of occupation and apartheid. And so we really wanted to include someone like him uh, because it's a common story and it's also the story of many of my friends uh, who were served in the Israeli military, realized that they were part of a system of apartheid and are now doing all they can to end that system. And Simone Zimmerman, um, you didn't serve in the IDF, 
but you did go to Israel and the occupied territories. You also, for a moment—what was it, for two days—became the outreach coordinator for the Bernie Sanders campaign before a campaign was waged against you. Talk about your trajectory, going to the occupied territories, coming back, founding, if not now. Um. Yeah, I, I went. You know, I had grown up spending time in Israel. I felt deeply connected to the place. I thought I knew. I thought I knew Israel, um, but the way that the apartheid system is actually built is such that Israeli Jews don't actually have to see the reality that Palestinians live under. They can drive on roads. You know, they can drive on the side of the wall where they don't have to see what is on the other side. The daily horrors and brutality and deep denial of, of dignity and freedom that Palestinians live under. And once I saw those realities with my own eyes, once I met people who had been evicted from their homes, who were denied basic freedom of movement, um, people just like me who want to live in, in freedom and safety, who, whose every piece of their lives have been uh, destroyed and constricted by a system of Jewish supremacy, I couldn't unsee those things. And again, as Aaron has already spoke about, this is a, a story that thousands of Jewish people around the world have, have encountered. Um, and we know that it's so deeply contrary to our values as Jewish people to support this disgusting oppression and denial of, of freedom from another people. And I've I've been part of this generation that includes, you know, If Not Now and Jewish Voice for Peace and, and many other groups that are taking on an outdated establishment that wants to enforce a pro-Israel orthodoxy and will do everything they can to attack and marginalize and silence anybody who dissents from that viewpoint. You mentioned at the beginning of this uh, segment the, the lawsuit going on at Harvard University, I, I can't help but bring up right now the attacks that we've seen over the weekend on Derek Penzler, the director of uh, a Jewish studies center at Harvard University, a world-renowned Jewish studies scholar. And he has been attacked for being named to an anti-Semitism task force at Harvard just because he criticizes the Israeli government. So we're seeing how far this establishment is willing to go to attack and marginalize anybody who doesn't toe that very strict and narrow orthodoxy and, and increasingly anybody who doesn't defend this, this government's genocidal assault on the Gaza Strip. And it's, it's absurd, but it's also deeply dangerous and offensive to those of us who are acting out of a deep place of intellectual integrity, of Jewish values, of a commitment to justice, who want to build a world of genuine safety and freedom and dignity for Jewish people and for Palestinians. And that old guard is more and more desperate to keep any of us out of out of public life and political life and certainly not to be legitimized as a legitimate Jewish voice.
Finally, Erin Axelman, you're in Canada. Um, Simone is here in New York. You're starting yet another tour of the film. Um, as Simone mentioned, um, Israelism is mentioned in the Harvard lawsuit, equating anti-Semitism with um, anti-Zionism or criticism of the Israeli state. Your final thoughts as you, the two of you travel both countries— Totally. You know, it's, it's ironic. You know, there was four attempted cancellations uh, of screenings that we had in the fall. And all, all of those screenings, uh, it was actually Jewish groups, Jewish student groups or Jewish faculty who were bringing us to the venue or university. So it's very ironic that under the guise of protecting Jewish students or fighting anti-Semitism, administrators or venues are trying to cancel a film brought by Jewish people, made by Jewish people, about Jewish people. And it just shows how confused this moment is and how all criticism of Israel, even if it's being made by Jews, is often considered anti-Semitic, and which is totally absurd and, and really makes it much more difficult to fight real anti-Semitism. And as we're about to do this screening, this screening tour, we're sure, we're sure there's going to be quite a few attempted cancellations. We just found out that Barnard's president uh, is attempting to unilaterally cancel a screening of Israelism uh, in February. We're working with the faculty and we will make this screening happen. And we will fight all attempts to cancel our screenings. And we'll also be part of the movement to fight back against attempted censorship of any pro-Palestinian uh, or progressive Jewish voices. Aaron Axelman, co-director of Israelism, and Simone Zimmerman, Jewish-American activist, co-founder of If Not Now. When we come back, Ron DeSantis has dropped out of the presidential race. Stay with us. I don't know what you want, but I can't give it anymore by Pet Shop Boys. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. We look now at the state of the Republican Party as Tuesday's presidential primary in New Hampshire narrows down to a two-person race after Republican Florida Governor Ron DeSantis announced he's dropping out in a video posted Sunday on social media. Today, suspending my campaign. I'm proud to have delivered on 100 percent of my promises, and I will not stop now. It's clear to me that a majority of Republican primary voters want to give Donald Trump another chance. As DeSantis drops out of the race and endorses Trump, more questions are being raised about Trump's mental capacity. At a campaign event Friday in New Hampshire, Trump confused his Republican rival Nikki Haley repeatedly with former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. By the way, they never report the crowd on January 6th. You know, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley, you know, they did you know they destroyed all of the information, all of the evidence, everything deleted and destroyed all of it, all of it because of lots of things like Nikki Haley is in charge of security. We offered her 10,000 people, soldiers, National Guard, so whatever they want. They turned it down. They Trump's lapse promoted his Republican presidential opponent, Nikki Haley, to question his mental fitness in an interview Sunday on CBS's Face the Nation. I mean, he claimed that Joe Biden was going to get us into World War II. 
I'm assuming he meant World War III. He said that he ran against President Obama. He never ran against President Obama. He says that I'm the one that kept security from, from the Capitol on January 6th. I was nowhere near the Capitol on January 6th. But, Margaret, you don't be surprised if you have someone that's 80 in office. Their mental stability is going to continue to decline. That's just human nature. We know that. For more, we're joined by historian Rick Perlstein, author of a four-volume series on the rise of the modern conservative movement. His column for The American Prospect is The Infernal Triangle. Rick, welcome back to Democracy Now! We don't have much time, but a lot to cover. Talk about the significance of DeSantis pulling out, endorsing Trump, what this all means now, the two-person race, though he is winning in polls by uh, level—I mean, in Iowa, we haven't seen before, trounced uh, DeSantis by 30 percent. And one after another, Republicans are endorsing him. Yes, uh, he's definitely going to be the nominee, presuming his continued ability to function as a human being, which is, you know, negligible. Uh, the important thing to understand is that, um, you know, the horse race stuff is fine, but, you know, the horse race doesn't matter if, you know, the guys in the MAGA hats blow up the track. The important thing is not how many votes Donald Trump is able to get. He's going to win the nomination. Uh, the important thing is not how many votes he gets in November, because he's going to claim he won no matter what. The important people is the important question is how many people are going to be willing to take arms up for Donald Trump, you know, the next January 6th, on, you know, in 2025. Uh, I don't want to be melodramatic about it, but, you know, reality itself now seems to, for millions of Americans, a considerable part of the Republican Party, flows from the person of Donald Trump. And uh, the word we have to begin using for this situation, as melodramatic as it seems, is American fascism. And can you talk about people like New Hampshire Governor Sununu, who did endorse Nikki Haley, now saying if it's Trump, he's going to ultimately support him uh, to the questioning of uh, Kristen Welker on Meet the Press. Um, you're saying you would support him despite January 6th, despite what you said about insurrection. All of these um, Republican leaders who've questioned Trump falling into line in the end, as Trump now today right. once again um, is dealing with the um, rape of E. Jean Carroll, the judge called it, essentially, in common parlance, right. rape. There's nothing new about that, right? If we look at what, you know, people like Lindsey Graham said uh, in 2015 and 2016 about Donald Trump, and then what they said when uh, they saw him as a vector to, you know, keep their own power. Uh, again, uh, it's really unfortunate and kind of creepy that the only sort of words that we have within the context of political philosophy that describe what's happening come from the German language. This is Fuhrerprinzip. You know, the truth comes from the leader. And when they need to kind of get behind a criminal in order to uh, be, um, you know, kind of a legitimate figure within a political party, that political party is, uh, you know, you got, you got to wonder what these guys are going to look like 50 years from now in the eyes of history, right? They'll look like, you know, the guys like Fritz von Poppen, you know, who said we have Hitler backed into a corner so far that he's going to squeal, right? Fritz von Poppen was the vice chancellor of Germany, the guy who, you know, made a coalition with Hitler that made him chancellor of Germany, right? Uh, these things are processed 
processes, you know, uh, and we're very far along a process, one for which, you know, the questions that are asked by conventional political journalism no longer signify anymore. We're going to continue this discussion and post part two online at democracynow.org. Also talk about what Ron DeSantis represented as he goes back to Florida as governor. Rick Perlstein writes the American Prospect column in the Infernal Triangle. He wrote Nixon Land. He wrote Reagan Land. More later.